I am bringing this sermon to you if I am concerned for you or concerned for us as a body. And I would actually say, no, I'm not. In fact, in some ways, I would say it's just the opposite. I would commend you for your faith in the midst of this crisis. And we've been very encouraged by your response to all these things, your faith in God, your love for the saints in the midst of this trial is actually a beauty to behold. You have encouraged our own hearts as a leadership. And so I want you to know I'm not bringing this because I'm overtly concerned at some of the response of our people. In fact, it's just the opposite. I've always contended that when you have a ministry that's committed to the teaching of the Word of God, we're committed to maturing the saints and we're committed to you standing firm in the midst of crisis. And I see that in you. Your faith is strong. Your love for others tells me of your faith in God. And I want to encourage you to excel still more in the faith. Keep doing what you're doing. Today, what, what I'm actually desirous of doing is equipping you. That, as Shay mentioned at the beginning, is one of our features here to glorify God by uh, equipping the saints, and I want to do that today. I want you to be able to help others of your friends and your family father, or in the midst of this as fathers, as mothers. I want to empower you this week. I want to empower you next week so that you can come alongside them who are anxious, come alongside those who are worried, and you'll be able to do that with the truth of the scripture and the power of the gospel. And so I've titled it, A Cure for Anxiety in a Pandemic Age, to help you as you assist others. Here's what I know about the staggering statistics of anxiety, okay? In 2010, we know that 253 million prescriptions were written for anxiety. We also know that the second highest volume drug in America is for anxiety. So beyond just the virus in which we live in, this is an issue that many face. In fact, we spend 11.6 billion dollars on antidepressants, $40 billion on drugs that are psychotropic drugs which alter the mood. And and it goes on and on. There are 34,000 suicides per year in America. It's the third leading cause for teenagers and often in response to anxiety. You know, it's, it's interesting, when you look back in the 1950s, they would say in the 1950s, about one in 10,000 battled with mental illness. One in 10,000. Today, it is one to 20 to 40 individuals, depending on the methodology that you use. Worldwide, obviously, this is not an issue, just anxiety in the United States. 322 million people worldwide live with depression, according to our world data. I mean, no one wants to admit to have anxiety, but our natural human condition, apart from Christ, is prone to anxiety. It's prone to be fearful. It's prone to be even worried. I mean, you may be asking, even in the midst of this, what will become of our health? What will become of our children in the future? In fact, what will our future look like? What will become of our marriages? What will it be like tomorrow? Anxiety could be rooted in a number of items. 
It could be rooted in a fear of failure. It could be rooted in loneliness. It could be rooted in a change of routine, a change of relationships. It could be rooted in schooling. It could be the underlying anxiety of all anxiety, which is the fear of death. And many find themselves in difficulty living in the present because of our apprehensions about the future. What is it that you're thinking about in terms of the future? Let me just say this to you as I begin, and I'll define anxiety in just a moment. All anxiety or worry has to do with the future. Anything that you're worried over, anything that you're anxious about, is likely rooted in some kind of apprehension about the future. There's difficulty living in the present because of your future thoughts. I want to direct your attention to two scriptures this morning. One that I'll briefly allude to, and then second that I'll take you to. But open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, of course, that section finds you in 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. It's our Lord's teaching of that sermon while he was on that mountain, if you will, thus the title, the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about giving to the needy. He's talking about the Lord's Prayer. He's talking about fasting. He's talking about laying up treasures in heaven. And then from 25 down through 34, he addresses the issue of anxiety. And I just want you to know that four separate times in verses 25 through 34, he commands us not to be anxious. In fact, look down in the scripture at 625. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, or nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. So he says there, do not be anxious. It is a command. Look down in 627. And which of you, by being anxious, there it is a second time, can add a single hour to his span of life? And the answer is no one can add anything to his own life, her own life, by being anxious. Glance down in the scripture in verse 31. Therefore, a command again, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And then finally, if you look at 634, therefore, uh, he told us in verse 33 to seek the first the kingdom of God in 33, and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. See, it's always about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so four different times he's addressing the issue of anxiety. If you glance in chapter 6, in verse 30, look what he says there. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you? And then this phrase, he says there in verse 30, O you of little faith. So you might say the remedy to anxiety is going to be grounded in your faith in God. Specifically in Matthew 6, your faith in God as your father. And so he commands us, does he not, and encourages us to not be anxious. And then he says, oh, you of little faith. But anxiety, as I mentioned, concerns the future. What is anxiety? And by the way, your translation might say worry. So if you hear me say either one of those words, I'm speaking of that Greek word, Mary Manao, is just simply the word in the ESV for anxiety or anxiousness. That word is built off two different Greek words. We just call that a 
compound word. It's built off the first part, which means to divide, to divide, marry. And then manao is related to the, the word noose, which is the word for mind. So to be anxious or to be worried is to have a divided mind. And so there's something to just grasp. It doesn't begin necessarily in the circumstance. The circumstance reveals something that we're thinking. And to be anxious is to have a divided mind. I found it interesting this week that even the Mayo Clinic... Uh, obviously not a biblical source and don't necessarily need um, an outside source than what the Bible says, but the Mayo Clinic said that all anxiety actually begins in the mind, quoting, although that might manifest itself in a physical sense. But it's interesting, the Bible, and at least through medicine, science, it begins in the mind. In fact, it's interesting that even the old English term for worry, for worry literally means to choke. It means to strangle. In fact, what worry or anxiety does is it strangles the mind. In fact, I even think that that word there The old English term fits the ideal of our modern day panic attack. Now certainly, uh, when somebody is experiencing that, you would say to me, Pastor, but it's physical. I have to sit down. My, My mind and my body and my ear, I'm losing my equilibrium. And that is true. But it's because of something you're thinking. And something you're fearful about. So how can we win the battle over anxiety and over worry? And this isn't necessarily a message for the virus that we're battling. I'm giving this to you for your life. For, I'm equipping you so that you can help others, from the wor- help others with the Word of God. So how can I win the battle over anxiety and worry? Is there a cure for anxiety in a pandemic world? And the answer is yes. Now, I wanted to just exposit from Matthew 6, but I'm going to ask you to turn over to the book of Ephesians. I think I'm going to come back to chapter 6 of Matthew next week, but I want to take you over to Ephesians chapter 6. Because one of the ways to win the battle, to gain victory over anxiety and worry, is to take up your shield of faith. So this is rather odd for me. I am going to preach the application before I do the exposition of Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to begin and start with the application. So get your pens out. Write these truths down because it will help you not only for this year, but the years to come. And I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 6, because when I got to Matthew 6.30, O ye of little faith, I thought of the pieces of the armor of God, that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so Paul exhorts us to take up the armor of God. And one of those pieces of that armor is mentioned in Ephesians 6.16. Look at it with me. He says, in all circumstances, all of them, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Look at it again. Focus on it. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you will extinguish, or you can extinguish, all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now remember, as I drop you into this passage, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He is in jail. He is in a Roman jail cell. He is likely right next to, maybe even chained 
to a Roman soldier in that prison. And as he's chained to the soldier, he's taking, if you will, these physical components of a soldier's armor, and he's transforming them into a profound spiritual truth. In fact, look back at the context just for a second. He says in 6.10 of Ephesians, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on, you're exhorted to, the whole armor of God that you may be able to, ex- to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so it's interesting, in chapter 4, he tells us to walk the worthy walk. But here he tells us to be strong, and he tells us in 6.11 to stand against the schemes of the, of the devil. Verse 12, you know by heart, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. And then he begins to take those external physical pieces of that Roman soldier's armor and he begins to transform them into a profound spiritual truth. Now, beloved, you know that the warfare described here has nothing to do with literal physical warfare against a human enemy or foe. It is a battle against the ultimate foe the spiritual forces that stand behind Satan himself, who, though, does incite acts of violence, hatred, actual flesh and blood warfare. But one of those pieces here is the shield of faith. And what I'd like to do just for a few moments here is answer a number of questions for you this morning that will free you to stand against your enemy. It could be a means, if you will, to win that battle over anxiety and worry or whatever comes next. So this really isn't for you as you're listening. It's not about the virus. It's about you and it's about how me and it's about how you handle life and what do you do when... Great trials or small trials come your way. So let's ask this first. What is he talking about on a Roman shield? What was a Roman shield? He's talking there. Let me tell you what a Roman shield was. He's he's addressing a Roman shield. What purpose did that shield serve? Well, there were several kinds of shields that the Romans, the soldiers, used in battle, two of these shields stand out. There was what we could call a small round shield. It was light, it was small, if you will, it was a round shield, and it was usually strapped to the left forearm of the soldier. I've got a picture of that that they'll bring up. It was small, you know, that looks big up on the screen, but you can understand, the the Romans used a a round shield, and they usually had it on their left forearm that they would, it's defensive, it would take the blows, and then with the right, with their sword in hand, they would thrust through, strapped, defending blows. However, this is not what Paul is talking about. He's not addressing the small Roman shield. He's addressing, rather, a a large wooden shield. In fact, you could even call it a large wooden plank. You say, well, Scott, how do you know that? Because of the word in the Greek language. The word describes what kind of shield he is talking about. This shield of faith, the word shield, was a shield that measured... Four feet by two and a half 
feet. And it was made of very thick plank wood. In fact, the Greek word is therion. Therion, from which we get another word, at least in Greek, was thyra, coming from therion. And thyra meant door. So when he talks about a shield of faith, think of the concept of a, of a door. In fact, you say, well, why would they have this four foot by two and a half foot shield? Well, if you were to read about battle tactics in this day, archers would put, uh, think on this, a cotton material on the iron tip of the arrows. They would soak that iron tip with what we could call pitch, pitch or tar. And once these arrows that would be lit, that would be, you know, shot, once they were shot and those arrows hit the target, the pitch would almost become a small incendiary bomb. And as they hit their opponent or their foe, they would start fires, and they would start fires on the clothing of the soldiers. If they shot those arrows and they sent them into a camp or they send them into a city, it would create just fire in that city and camp. So, beloved, what the Romans did to counteract that attack was they built a large four-foot by two-and-a-half-foot wooden shield. And this shield was designed for full body protection. It was actually protection against the rain of arrows that would be incoming. And the purpose of this particular shield, which the Romans called a scutum, S-U-T-U-M, was to intercept the enemy's fiery arrows. Now, I'm not sure what's in your mind here. When you think of a fiery arrow, they had the cotton on it. They would put, they would put like a, a pitch on it, a combustible material. But you have to understand that as I'm reading this, some of these arrows were seven feet long themselves. So they would take these arrows and fire them. And so the Romans built this large wooden shield for full body protection from the rain of arrows that were incoming. And it, that was the purpose of them, was to intercept these arrows. And as these arrows came into the shield, they, in other words, the shield took the arrow, they put on the front of the shield kind of a, a leather covering, a hide. And then they would take that leather covering on the front of the shield and they would soak it in an oil base or water base, if you will, to extinguish the fiery pitch of the arrows. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transform this in just a moment for you. In fact, what the Romans did is they had a long line of soldiers that would carry these shields. And these soldiers would stand, if you will, their shields in front of the troops. And as the Roman army moved toward the enemy, the soldiers would plant these four by two and a half foot shields side by side, creating an incredible wall of protection. In fact, I got a picture for you just so you can see what we're talking about. Do you see that up there? You could see that front shield there. You could see the soldiers behind it. So the one would put that shield down. Then they would lay the next shield on top of it. So that as these arrows that were dipped in pitch would be flying all over the place. They would be stopped, if you will, by these scutum uh, shields and hide you against the tack. But maybe better than a picture, I've got... A real, well, I don't want to say a real, but I've got a pretty close uh, rendition of this shield. And I want, you to, I want you to see this, okay? Here it is, right here. I had somebody build this for me. But you can, you can imagine if you were a soldier and a five to seven foot arrow was coming your way, 
lit on fire, you would want to get down behind this. You would want to, you'd want full body protection behind it, and then you'd want something on the top over you. So as these raining arrows would come in, in fact, the first, first uh, child in our church who can remember what the name of that shield was, I'll give it to you, okay? So, so you, you'd want that shield, would you not? In fact, what these were called, thank you to Steve Nagel who actually made that shield for us, they were called advancing columns and they were actually the terror of the Roman foes. You say, how effective were these shields? Well, according to one church historian, after the siege of a, of a battle called Drachimas, a man by the name of Sceva, think about this, counted 220 darts or arrows in one shield. That, that's, that's a lot. You'd rather have those darts hit your shield than hit your body. Now, what is Paul getting at here? Look again at the text in 1616. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. So he's talking about our protection, just like there was a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, the the shoes of the gospel of peace. He says, you, in the midst of this battle, need to take up your shield of faith. It is your defense against the enemy. What's interesting about as he transforms this physical component to a spiritual reality, in the Old Testament, the shield was a metaphor to describe God's power and even his protection with his people. When our Lord called Abraham in Genesis 15:1, he said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. And so God was a means of protection to Abram. We're told in other places of the Old Testament not to fear because the Lord, at least in 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one, 31, is a shield for those who take refuge in him. There's a number of Psalms that address God as our shield. But here, as we're looking at this in Ephesians 6, the shield is a shield of faith. Now, I don't believe that he's talking about saving faith here. He's talking about a living faith. At salvation, we were given the gift of faith. We understand that, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But that gift of faith leads to a life of faith. Faith specifically in the promises of God. Faith specifically in the person of Christ. Now I need to make this note for you. That the faith mentioned here is not your faith. First of all, you have to jettison that. It is the object of your faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is the promises of God. So when he talks about the shield here, it's not your faith. It's the faith in that object of God's promises and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You say, how important is this shield? Well, you know from Hebrews eleven six that those who come to God must believe that he is. And that you must believe that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith, again, is believing in the character and the promises of God. In fact, if you were to look over later in Romans chapter 4, you would see that the secret of Abraham's faith was his trust in God's character, was his trust in God's promises. Now you say, okay, it's a shield. The shield here is a shield of faith. It's a faith in the promises of God But what's the shield's purpose? Look again at 6.16. He says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish, you now see the picture come, all the flaming darts of the evil one. In other words, this is not physical combat here. He's talking about spiritual combat. 
And he's saying as one of those pieces of the armor that he's given to you is a shield of faith. And you need to get that guard up. You need to get that shield up because if you have it up, you're going to be able to extinguish the flaming arrows, the flaming darts of the evil one. It is a picture, beloved, of Satan ever looking to pierce you, ever looking to find a weak spot in your faith. And what the shield of faith does is lay hold of the promises of God in times of doubt. It lays hold of the promises of God in times of discouragement. It lays hold of the promises of God in times of discontentness or even depression. And it extinguishes, does that shield of faith, all the flaming arrows or darts of the evil one. Your faith enables you to do that. Do you remember in Peter's epistle when he said, be sober, and he says, be vigilant and watchful. Your adversary prowls about like a roaring lion, what? Seeking someone to devour, and Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him firm in your faith. But again, the faith is not your faith. It needs to be exercised, but it's bound up in the promises of God. So there's the first question. What was a Roman shield? It's a defensive piece, literally, but it represents here spiritually our faith against the evil one. Here's the second question, though. How does Satan attack us? I mean, what's, what's he getting at here in 16, which you can't extinguish all the flaming in fact, here it says in the ESV, darts of the evil one. What are those darts? What are those darts that are deadly to our faith? Well, let me just say they're often well-aimed They're by Satan. They're often powerful. They're often sudden temptations. They're often what seems to be accusations that come to you out of nowhere. And what Satan, your enemy, your arch enemy does, along with his cohorts, is seeks to paralyze you. Paralyze you through fear. He's aiming, if you will, to confuse you. What he would utterly like to do is disable you. Disable your faith. Oh, he can't take you and separate you from the love of God, but he would love even this morning to rob you of your joy, to rob you of your position. And rather than having your shield up, you've discarded it and you're just taking the full blunt of all the darts that are coming in and you don't even know what's happening. Could be very subtle, could be very overt. You say, well, how does he attack us? What does it mean here in 6.16, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts? It would be hard to mention them all. A great book, Puritan classic, is Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. You can pick that up. But let me mention a few. First, there's the dart of doubt. The dart of doubt. This is how it works. The dart of doubt could come a number of ways, but it certainly could come through false teaching to cause you to doubt the scripture, to doubt, does God really love me? Does God really forgive me? Is God really in control? In other words, he's going to send a, a dart your way. It's flaming. Get your shield up, if you will. Sometimes that dart of doubt is accompanied by a desire to disobey all at the same time. It's amazing how that works. I, I think I just point you to one picture. You remember what Satan, the serpent, said to Eve. Don't forget. And you know it. You can finish the sentence. Hath God really, what? Said. It's what he's going to do. He's going to fire a dart your way, a dart of doubt, to get you to doubt the scripture and then you're going to go to other means like YouTube and find a bunch of crazy stuff out there. 
and you've got your shield down, you dropped your shield, and rather than standing and putting on the armor and putting that shield up, you're just letting the arrows come in. It's a dart of doubt. In fact, you have to be careful, according to the book of Revelation, in 12.10, speaking of the character of Satan, it says that he accuses you before our God day and night. He's accusing you before our God day and night, saying things like, you're not really saved. Why don't you just give up? You're not really a very good parent. In fact, you know that sin that you did years ago, Satan can whisper, you're not really forgiven. And you get a dart of doubt that comes your way and you listen to it. You don't have your shield up. Your faith is not up. Your guard is not up. You're just allowing those darts to come in. In fact, I was thinking this week of a, of a term that pilots use, and it's called a graveyard spiral. It's when a pilot cannot pull up in the midst of the doubt. In fact, the pilot begins to fly by his feelings and his inner ear is messed up within his equilibrium. And rather than flying by the instruments, he flies by his feelings and he's flying in a pattern that can often lead to his or her death. Listen, Satan's going to send you a dart of doubt. You need to put your shield up. Secondly, there's another flaming dart called the dart of despair. The dart of despair, it uh, could be so many, frustration on the job, or maybe even for some of you, a lack of job during this time. It's rejection by a spouse, possibly a failed marriage. Or for you singles, it's a relationship with a guy, with a young woman, or just an issue of singleness. You begin to despair. Could be a class at school, or it could just be school itself. In fact, I asked one of the young boys in our church in the last couple weeks if he misses school, and he goes, oh, no, Pastor Scott. He goes, it just takes me an hour a day. I don't know why I go so long to school. And so some of the response has been interesting. But you could become frustrated. You could become frustrated by persecution. You could despair even that by, by way of criticism. You find yourself in despair through physical pain or through finances or even the despair of uh, the fear of the future. A dark cloud comes over you. Possibly the greatest fear, the death of a loved one. And like the disciples who are in the boat, you feel like you're perishing in the storm and you're despairing in all of life. So there's a dart of doubt. There's a dart of despair. There's also, thirdly and finally, maybe a dart of discontent. In other words, your situation leads to, if you're not careful, a discontentness in life, in work, in the home, in anything that relates to the future. And it's very easy to become what I call here an Eeyore, such as on Winnie the Pooh. And you become so despondent and so discontent that you've lost all your joy in the home. You've lost all your joy in the family. And all of a sudden, he's firing his missiles. You don't even know what, that he's doing it. And listen, I'm just saying to you, it might be much more subtle than you ever even think. Okay? And he's leading you down and you don't have your shield up. And so you say, what can I do to avoid the dart of doubt, despair, discontentness? Well, you might ask, is there a cure for Satan's flaming darts? And that's the third question. Is there a cure for these darts or for anxiety? And the answer is yes. You put up the shield of faith. And as you put that shield of faith up, you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. You say, well, I, let me just take you a step further. Say, Pastor, how does that work? I mean, practically. Practically, realistically, honestly, how does it work? Well, faith is, we know from Hebrews 11.1, 1, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. 
And so he's addressing, again, God's promises. But the, the, the definition of faith that I like, certainly from Hebrews 11.1, 1, is one that uh, I've got over the years from reading one of my favorite books. It's by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it's called Spiritual Depression. And really, it's just a book about the Psalms. It's a book about what David read, Psalm 42. It's certainly in one of my top three books of all time. But Lloyd-Jones gave this definition for faith. And, and you can apply it to whatever your situation is now, it will be, or even what you're going through. Here's what Lloyd-Jones said. He said, the definition of faith is this, a refusal to panic. I like that. It's a refusal to panic. And you're refusing to panic because there is an awesome God in whom you can trust and who is in control of every event in your life. So is there a cure for these darts and cure for anxiety? Yes. But let me pro provide you, I had a few remedies to, to list, but I'll just give you one remedy this morning. You need to, you say, how do, how do I put that shield of faith up? Transform, here's a remedy, transform your thinking, you know I'm going to say this, with the word of God. It's interesting that in the very next scripture, look at 6.17, he tells us there to take up the helmet of salvation, and then he says in 6.17 of Ephesians, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, he's telling you as a remedy to get this shield up on his promises to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, or otherwise Satan is apt to move into a vacuum and tempt you to be anxious, tempt you to be worried. And when you are anxious and when you are filled with worry and when fear dominates your life and when those things begin to paralyze you, you have got to think on the word of God. So let me say, here's how it might work. You get a dart of doubt that comes your way. Whatever it is, husbands, whatever it is, mothers with children, whatever it is, singles or junior high and high school, you have some random rogue dart of doubt that comes your way. You've got to put scripture in there. You say, well, like what scripture? Like this one in Psalm 56.3. The psalmist said, when I am afraid... I will put my trust in you. I'm not saying you're not going to be afraid or be tempted to anxiety or worry. But when I am afraid, the psalmist said in 56.3, I will put my trust in you. When you are tempted, we sang it this morning, with a dart of doubt about your salvation, and some of you are, okay, then you can put in your mind Romans 8.38 when Paul says, I am sure he said that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You either let your feelings fly the plane, which might be going in the wrong way, or you rearrange your mind to the instruments of Scripture and let them inform you. That's a great verse. Nothing's going to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you battle the dart of doubt with the Scripture. Secondly, you battle the dart of despair when you're overwhelmed with the Scripture which actually this is another remedy. It's in prayer, but we'll keep it here. You, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your care upon him because he what? He cares for you. You cast it on him. And rather than trying to be the king of your own castle and fix your issue, you're casting all your care on him because he cares for you. And you're reminding yourself through the word of God and through prayer that he cares for you just right now. 
There's something going on in your life in the future. There's something that can tempt you to become anxious. But with prayer, casting all your care on him because he cares for you. Thirdly, there's the dart of discontent. The dart of discontent, and I'll take you back there, I think, next week on Matthew 6. It's amazing that the issue of only serving one master with your possessions is followed in that exposition with this theme of anxiety. You say, what do you mean discontent? Well, I don't know. You're just, me, us, you're just not content. You've lost your joy in your home. You've lost your joy at the marketplace. That your shield is down. And it could happen to me. It could happen to you. And all of a sudden, you're taking these darts, and one of them is discontent. You say, how would I fight it? Well, you'd fight it with the Scripture. You'd battle that with the remedy of Scripture. When Paul said in Philippians, I've learned to be content in whatever, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then you finish the statement with me when Paul said, I can do what? All things through Christ or through him who strengthens me. You might even say this this morning to me, but pastor, my trial is so difficult You feel that way. But Paul said there, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But see, pastor, this happened to me a number of years ago. And this happened in in my marriage or this trial happened or worked happened or the death of a loved one. And I just don't, I just can't do it. Well, Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can bound this remedy up. You you need to put your shield back on. You need to stand firm. You need to put your armor on. You need to take up that big massive shield of faith and get behind it and begin to pray the scripture and begin to memorize the scripture or you're just letting Satan pull back and just toast you, Just, just rip into you. And, and discourage you and cause you to doubt and despair and bring discontentment and sometimes even depression. In fact, in Matthew, here's another uh, biblical remedy from the word of God when Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than the clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then the last phrase, are you not of more value than they? I mean, if he feeds the birds, is he going to take care of you? And the answer would be yes. Listen, I want to be gentle with you. If you've put your shield down... The Bible says, take up that shield. He's already provided you with all the armor, but you've got to take it up. You've got to put it up. You can't fly by your feelings. You've got to fly by the truth of the instruments of the word of God. I think it was Piper who said, when you're anxious about a new venture, battle the fiery darts with this promise. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will help you and I will strengthen you. I will uphold you but with my victorious right hand, Isaiah 41.10. You might be anxious maybe on another thought about a difficult circumstance. Battle that dart. It's a hard circumstance. It's a hard conversation. It's a hard relationship. And you just feel like, I don't know if I have the strength to do this. Well, then take up 2 Corinthians 12, 9. That where Jesus, the word of God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. He's going to supply you with all you need. Maybe you're anxious about a future decision. 
and you just don't know what to do with that decision, well, you can battle that doubt, that dart of doubt with the promise that from Psalm 32.8, that I will instruct you, the Bible says, I will teach you the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eyes upon you. So in other words, you take up your shield built off the promises of God, the promises of Christ, the person of Christ as revealed in his word and you begin to quote scripture truth back rather than your own feelings. Listen, if you're anxious about some opponent that you've got to face, some lawsuit that you might be brought into, you can quote this one, Romans 8.31, if God is for us, then what? Who can be against us? If you're anxious, maybe some of you, that you'll fall away from the faith. I've had people tell me that in counseling. Pastor, I'm just so concerned. I don't know if I should give my life to the Lord, or I don't know even in this time that we're in, I don't know what it's going to be like in the tribulation, and I don't know if I can hold on. And all of a sudden, you're moved by your feelings rather than the truth of Scripture. You can battle that thought. You might get that thought. When Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this. He said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He's going to finish what he started. Listen, is there a cure for anxiety and worry? The answer is yes. You take up the shield of faith that is bound up in the promises of God, revealed in his word And you will be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. If you're a new couple and you've been married just recently, the best you can do is start praying together. Start bringing these things to the Lord together. If you're you're training young children, then get them to memorize the scripture. This is when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He responded three times with the word of God. The word of God is a remedy so that we fly by the instruments of the word of God and not by our own feelings. May God give us grace as we forge ahead.